0: I called you on the day of the announcement of your Nobel Prize in the aftermath of your hearing the news. Yes, yes, it was pretty hectic. I think Petrona was actually cutting your hair at the same time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's correct, she did. Well, she used to cut people's hair. She had expertise in that area, yes.
0: Well, she sent us a couple of very beautiful photographs of you standing on your balcony. um, (laughs) And so we could see with our own eyes that she'd done a good job.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think she did, yes.
0: Roger Penrose spent many months of the pandemic in isolation. While on the one hand that meant having to get haircuts in the kitchen, on the other hand it gave him time to contemplate some of the questions that he continues to grapple with. He shared some of his thoughts in this chat from season two of the podcast, and I very much hope you enjoy this encore presentation.
1: I'm very bad at giving up. I know Stephen Hawking was that way. I remember describing how how determined he was about things.
2: That was 2020 Physics Laureate Roger Penrose. And this is Nobel Prize Conversations.
1: I give up if I realise they're wrong. That happens, certainly.
2: British mathematician and physicist Roger Penrose was awarded the 2020 Nobel Prize in Physics for his work which showed that black holes are a direct consequence of the general theory of relativity. In December 2020, he received his Nobel Medal and Diploma at a ceremony in London, not Stockholm. It was one of the few times he's left his home in the past year, where he's been in isolation due to the coronavirus pandemic. Nobel Prize Conversations is produced with the support of our Nobel international partners 3M, ABB, Ericsson and Scania. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. Adam reached Penrose by phone in the solitude of his home in Oxford and began by asking him how his experience of lockdown has been.
1: Yes, well, I don't think we can say too much about the future at this certain stage, but I mean, the vaccine presumably will will reduce the thing considerably, and so maybe it'll be all right to travel. I'm quite happy about not traveling, actually. I mean, I had an enormous number of uh, appointments occupying almost the entire year, which never took place.
0: Yes, and so more time to think, although you, you don 't seem to be short of time to think but
1: <laughs> well, I was doing a lot lot of that before the no- you see, I was doing quite well until the Nobel Prize came along, and then <laughs> and then it rather got put on hold for while. the things I was thinking about no I, I was I was taking advantage of lockdown to develop some ideas which i'd thought about a bit before, but not not really to the extent that I was able to. Mm because all these travels were were, were canceled and so on. Mm. Um
0: but in general are you good at clearing the decks to give yourself space?
1: Well not in the, not in the literal sense. My decks over here I can see all stacked up with <laughs> papers and things like that. But in, in in the in the sense I think you mean mm. uh, I don't know if it's ever cleared like that. There's so many things going on which involve thinking about different things that it's not too easy to develop particular ideas that I've been trying to work on. Well, there are about three of them. You see, that's the trouble. Mm. Well, one of them is a, is a book, which I keep putting off, um, using the the pictures, the prints and paintings of the artist M.C. Escher to illustrate various mathematical themes. So I, I have a contract with with my publisher to write this book, but I'd done almost nothing about it except give a couple of talks in which I explained the sort of thing I had intended to do.
2: The surreal works of Dutch graphic artist MC Escher won him a reputation as a master of illusions. Escher's work captured Roger Penrose's imagination as soon as he first encountered it when visiting an exhibition in the Netherlands And the 1958 paper that Penrose wrote with his father Lionel, called Impossible Objects, A Special Type of Visual Illusion, was in part a result of that visit. That paper, which introduced the famous Penrose Triangle, also contained an illustration of an endless staircase that became known as the Penrose Stairs. The paper eventually found its way back to Escher, closing the circle, these Penrose stairs inspired Escher's famous 1960 drawing Ascending and Descending, in which its subjects climb eternally upwards and downwards on an impossible four-sided staircase. Let's hear some more about Roger Penrose's new book and whether he thinks Escher might also have been a master of mathematics.
0: That sounds a lovely book and a continuation of this long-standing relationship with Escher's work, because it was his work that inspired you first to come up with the Penrose Triangle, wasn't it?
1: It was, that's quite right, yes. It was very curious, because later I realised what it was, there's some people, I think, I don't remember if it was the BBC or something, it was quite a long time ago, where they uh, had a a program which was supposed to be on twister theory, which is something... It's quite technical mathematics, and quite why they thought it would make good... um, a good program for the general public, I wasn't sure. But anyway, uh, they were making this thing, and then I... uh, What was it? Yes. They asked me, what good is it, you see? And I said, well, one of the things it can do is to solve Maxwell's equations, the equations which govern electricity, magnetism, and my ability to speak to you uh, at the moment, and so on, all sorts of things, radio waves, and uh, x-rays, and all these things. And uh, so I said, well, yes, the Twister theory is you can can solve... uh, Maxwell's equation. And they say, well, how do you do this? And so I said, well, it's an idea I can't really explain. It, it, it wouldn't be appropriate for this program. I say, oh, well, what's that? Oh, it's called cohomology. They say, oh, well, can't you explain that? No, no, there's no way I could possibly explain that. And then I sort of, the next day, as I woke up in the morning, I thought of an idea, namely the impossible triangle, which is an illustration of cohomology. You see, locally, it makes sense, but you don't know how far away from the eye it is. So if you look just a, small, a corner of the, the triangle, say, um, it could be closer or it could be further away if you're drawing a picture of it, you see. Mm-hmm. So that you have that freedom. And having that freedom, you can go around the, symbol, for around the triangle here and produce contradiction. The way you characterize this contradiction is by in terms of what's called cohomology, that describes the degree of impossibility, actually, in the picture. So I realized that it was actually an illustration of that, but uh, they didn't use it. (laughs) But it did seem that that's something that one could use, because a lot of Escher pictures, I could see lots of things that you could illustrate using Eschers. And I had thoughts of okay, and one one chapter on this topic, one chapter on that topic, one chapter on another. But then you find that the Escher picture, which best illustrates the first topic, also illustrates the second topic, and maybe the third topic at the same time. So he crams so many of these things all at once into a single picture, and it makes the organisation extremely difficult.
0: I suppose as a starting point for people to start to think about the mathematics. The pictures would be lovely points of reference.
1: I think the idea was to start off and show what these pictures illustrate mathematically and then maybe say a little bit which goes beyond them and then for the rest of it just give references. Mm. Mm. So that's the way I think we would plan to do it. For example, there are lots of these... um, tessellations with animals and creatures and people and so on um, which illustrate various symmetries and there are these 17 different symmetry groups which are illustrate. it does illustrate each one of those which is very striking and uh, this will lead on to these things which I've been doing which are not periodic you see they they, they look as though they're periodic and you only have a small number of pieces which you fit together and uh, Escher would have would have absolutely made hay with this if he'd been alive he unfortunately died he died about the same time as my father did and neither of them uh, were able to see this which I was always a great regret for me
0: that's the shape so this is things like the Penrose tiling pattern the fivefold so yeah did Escher himself understand the mathematics behind his patterns
1: I think he did. You see, he always said that he was very bad at mathematics or something, but who knows what that means. He clearly understood it. You can look at these pictures. Take, the, for example, one that I, I did use in the Nobel lecture, actually, which is this, one of the things called circle limits. And you see these angels and devils. Unless I use the fish. I can't remember if I use the fish or the angels and devils. But anyway, you see, you see them interlocking and forming this pattern. And you look at the pattern and you see the angels and devils get smaller and smaller as you get towards the edge. It was the fish, I think. It was the fish. Okay, so the fish get smaller and smaller as you get towards the edge. But in the, well, in the geometry that they are inhabiting, they don't think they're smaller. They think they're the same size as the ones in the middle. But this is what's called a conformal representation. So it's, you squash them down in all directions by the same amount. Another way of saying this is that angles, if you see the fish have a certain angle on it's fin, then that angle is going to be exactly the same, no matter how small it is. And you see how precisely Escher has done this, right down to the very edge, and you can see the tiny little fish right there, and they're all extremely precisely done, according to this prescription. Now, you can't do that without understanding something of the mathematics. So he clearly did, I consider that he was a mathematician. He just never sort of admitted to it.
2: (laughs) When he was growing up, Penrose's parents hoped he would pursue medical research instead of mathematics. But it turned out that a sort of academic accident prevented it. We'll hear more about that later. But first, Roger Penrose tells us how sharing a common interest in geometry with his father, Lionel Penrose, a leading researcher in medical genetics in the 1950s, helped create an uncommon father and son publishing team. So you mentioned that you're sad
0: your father didn't see your, for instance, your tiling pattern. And it was was with him that you published a joint paper, this original triangle. It's fascinating that you were... In, in a sense, colleagues with your father, as, uh, as well as being father and son. It's, it's an unusual relationship.
1: Yes. Well, we wrote more than one. That was one paper you wrote together. We wrote another one together, which was, I would say that paper that is, was more my contribution than his, in a sense. Although he, he developed the staircase from what I ha- He developed all sorts of buildings which were impossible in one way or another. And then he came up with the staircase, And we then sent the paper to Escher. We'd given reference to the catalog, to the the museum exhibition in in, uh, Amsterdam, where I'd seen the Eschers for the first time. And uh, he then had a bit of correspondence with my father. And then I traveled when I was on, I think I was a lecture tour or something in in the Netherlands, and i telephoned Escher. My father had his phone number. And he invited me and my then wife to to tea and he I talked to him for a bit and then he had these two piles of prints on one on either side of him. There was a long table, I was at one end of the table and he was at the other and he said these these are on his left, he said I'm very short of these. The ones on the right, you can choose one. So he just pushed them over to me, <laughs> and I leaped through them, and I thought, oh my God, <laughs> I've got to choose one of these. Now, which one on earth can I choose? So I picked one out, which I thought I hadn't, I'd never seen before. And he was very pleased I picked that one out, because he said, well, people don't usually understand that one. <laughs> so I thought that was, that was quite flattering.
0: It was a test, yes. Well done, you passed. <laughs>
1: Yes, you could think it was a test, yes.
0: Did Escher's house look like uh, an Escher drawing?
1: Well, you see, that was the thing. My father kept saying, oh, well, you'll see his house, there will be staircases going out of the window. On the contrary, it was a very high, organized, very neat, um, well-organized and neat, you might expect that for him, mm-hmm. with a huge pic- picture window, I seem to remember. But it was it was nothing extraordinary or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. impossible about his house, at least not that I could see anyway.
0: Mm-hmm in this relationship with your father did you did you always feel like colleagues from when you were young were you sort of joint intelligences
1: i think it goes way back i remember most particularly um you see we spent the war years in canada we went over to canada just before the second world war my father we went over to the us first he had something in philadelphia and then we moved to london ontario in canada where we stayed for the, I think the war broke out when we, I can't remember exactly when, but we were certainly over on the American continent at that time, North American continent. And uh, I remember at one point, yes, this is something in particular. It wasn't probably the only thing, but I remember this in particular. I noticed that either it was a floor or a, or a t- the kitchen tabletop. I had a feeling it was a kitchen tabletop or something, which was tessellated with little hexagons. So they were little white hexagons, and, and it was tessellated out of those. So I asked my father, look, um, suppose this pattern went on and on and on and on. Could it close up and cover a sphere? That's what I said to him.
0: If you don't mind me saying so, that's a hell of a question for an eight-year-old or even someone a little older. <laughs>
1: Anyway, so that's what I said. Can he close up and make a sphere? And he said, no, but you can do it with pentagons. That was the way it came about. That's right. And so then he told me about the dodecahedron. And so we spent a lot of time making polyhedra and different kinds, truncated um, ones as well and all this. And so we made quite a lot of these things. So this we certainly did together.
0: Mm, that's lovely. But Having your inquisitiveness inform each other.
1: That's interesting, wasn't it? Yes, yes I, had a, I had a very close relation to my father in that respect. You see, he had a close relation to my two other brothers in a different respect. I was always supposed to be the medical one. Both my parents were medical, and uh, they are given up on my older brother, Oliver. He's obviously just going to be a mathematician or, some, or a physicist or something, and they are given up on Jonathan because he was just interested in playing chess or other games. And they concluded that I would be the one to carry on the the medical career, which I thought myself, too. And when back in England, I guess it would have been, I'd had two years, it was going on for the final two years there. And each one of us had to go up to the headmaster to say what we would do in our final two years. And I remember as I was walking up to the desk, I was going to be a doctor. So he said to me, what subjects do you want to do in your uh, last two years? And so I said, I'd like to do biology, chemistry, and mathematics. And he said, no, you can't do that combination. If you want to do mathematics, you can't do biology. If you want to do biology, you can't do mathematics. But then, since I couldn't do biology, I said, mathematics, physics, and chemistry. Because at that point, I simply didn't want to lose the math. I, I, You know, I love math and I was sort of lukewarm about biology. So I just didn't want to lose the mathematics. And so there, my medical career went down the tubes, right? <laughs> In a flash. And when I went home, I, I got into real trouble with my parents. They said, well, you've been keeping bad company, they said, because one of my best friends wanted to be a nuclear physicist. And to them, this is about the worst thing you could do because you nuclear bombs. You see, they were both sort of pacifists. Um, well, my father was a Quaker. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't approve of the of, of bombs and things like that. And so they thought I'd been keeping bad company. It was nothing to do with that at all. It's just the math.
0: Oh, that that sort of teenage rebellion was the sort of thing that most people had to deal
1: with. But, but then he got one of, the co- one of the teachers, one of the lecturers at, at the college. And got, he made, he was an amazing person. I don't know how he did this. But he made up... I think it was either 6 or 12, I can't it may even be, it may have been 12, specially made up problems that were unusual in some way or another. And he said, well, look, he gave me this problem. He said, well, you may only be able to do one or two, but we'll see what, how you get on by the end of the day. And I remember I did a lot, you see. <laughs> And I gave him to and he was pretty impressed with that. So he thought maybe he told my father, and then father sort of gave in.
0: <laughs> Lovely stories. And how, but how odd that, in fact, an a, I mean, maybe maths would have, would have had its way anyway, but at least when you met the headmaster, that an accident of timetabling um, pushed you further towards maths.
1: Yes, I mean, later on I would have been able to do biology and maths. You could have done both, yes. But at that time, they were sort of too foreign to each other, yes. Yes, it is. that was certainly an accident of of the way things were at that time, yes.
0: You've mentioned earlier that um, you're working on three things at once at the moment, and you do have this lovely diversity. I was interested in how you keep these balls in the air? Do you work on one problem for a while and then decide you've got a bit of a way with that and then put it aside when you focus on another? Because I assume that each of these requires a deal of concentration and an unbroken thought.
1: I think it is something like that. But you see, they are sort of connected on the whole. I mean, in effect, the least clearly connected is the, uh, the non-periodic tilings, although that is an illustration of a non computable problem you see the tiling problem I mean that was an interest of mine yes that was another interest of mine you see, well you see it goes back in a way to when I was a graduate student in Cambridge well it goes back earlier than that but when I was a graduate student in Cambridge and uh, I was supposed to be doing pure mathematics I was supposed to be doing algebraic geometry under under Hodge and uh, I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of time, I can go to other lectures, which might interest me. And so I went to Bondi's lectures on on, uh, general relativity and cosmology. I went to Dirac's lectures on quantum mechanics, the great physicist Paul Dirac, on quantum mechanics. And I went to a lecture course by a man called Steen on mathematical logic. And they each played a role, you see. When I had the mathematical logic one, that's where I learned about Gödel's theorem. And I remember talking about mathematical logic when well, no, I was an undergraduate, actually, to, to a colleague of mine. This was Ian Percival, who, who also became a later physicist and a fellow of the Royal Society. Um, but we used to talk about all sorts of things, and mathematical logic was one of them. And I'd heard about Gödel's theorem, and I thought it said there were certain things in mathematics you couldn't prove, and I didn't like that idea. But then I went to, to Steen's course, and he explained it very clearly. It was that if you have any particular system which you regard as proofs of mathematical theorems, in one certain class of, say, say, about number theory, certain set of axioms and rules of procedures, then what Gödel shows is that you can produce a particular statement which you can see is true by virtue of the meaning of the statement and your trust in the rules that you're allowed to use to prove things. So the fact that you are constrained to a certain system, and if you trust that system to give you only truths, then you can produce a statement which you can see by virtue of your trust that the system only gives you truths is true, nevertheless is not derivable by means of these, by the system. And I thought that was absolutely stunning. Because it told me that there is something in our thinking, our understanding, which is not computational. And then I started wondering, well, what, what can it be? That's Okay, I, I was very much a physicalist. I didn't believe there was some mysterious who's-it-whats-it comes in and and... And uh, makes us do things which aren't physics. I thought it's physics of some kind, but what can it be? And I knew about Newtonian mechanics, and I knew about Einstein's general relativity from Bondi. I knew, thought it would be pretty difficult to put on a computer, but we now know you, know, you can do things like these LIGO uh, simulations of black holes spiralling into each other, and you can see the signals in the in the LIGO uh, detector. So it's clear you can do, put that on a computer. What about quantum mechanics? Well, I remember hearing Dirac's first lecture. And his first lecture, I think it was his first one, and he talked about the superposition principles. He said a particle can be here and it can't be, can be there, and it can be here and there at the same time. And then he took out a piece of chalk. And so people tell me he broke it in two, I think. And he would say, what about this piece of chalk? This could be here and there. And then my mind wandered. And I was looking out of the window and thinking about something else. And then when I, my concentration came back to the lecture, he'd gone on to the next thing. I had in mind that he'd said something about how much energy it would cost for something. I didn't know what it was. And that puzzled me ever since. That whatever it is that collapses the wave function must be a physics which is beyond computation. And that that physics, since it's beyond computation, should be the physics which is taken advantage of by our conscious brains. So it was that viewpoint which I formulated. I did, this was a viewpoint, I didn't think much about it, until much, much later.
0: So the seed sown as an undergraduate was waiting for the right conditions to flourish.
1: Was really waiting for, for the first sort of popular book I wrote, well, semi-popular, I suppose you call it, The Emperor's New Mind.
2: Roger Penrose's book, The Emperor's New Mind, concerning computers, minds and the laws of physics, was released in 1989. The theories that he presents in it are considered controversial, and Penrose's ideas have both fans and opponents. As you'll hear, Penrose argues that by its very nature, human consciousness isn't possible to model using digital computers. How does he think the human mind works, then? Well, this is where neurophysiology meets physics.
1: I had in mind that I would write a book which was really explaining all the wonderful things that I'd learned about physics and mathematics, or a few of them, I should say but aimed in a sense to seeing what it could be that could be beyond computation, thinking that whatever human understanding is, is something beyond computation. And how could it be? And what could be going on in the brain that might be taking advantage of the collapse of the wave function? You see, that was a a view I would held for a long time. I don't remember quite when I formulated that view, but it was certainly as a result of the combination of, of Steen's lectures and Dirac's lectures. Uh, But I didn't, I thought, well, I would wait till I was retired and have enough time to write a book. But then I remember hearing a, a discussion between Marvin Minsky and Edward Fredkin, in which they were being very computationalists and talking about these two computers, talking to each other, and as you walk up, to the other end of the room, they would have communicated with each other more ideas than the entire human race. And I thought, well, I see where you're coming from, but I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> the ideas are something else, you see. And so I didn't believe that it was computation. This this really uh, stimulated me to start writing this book, The Emperor's New Mind, and there I thought, well, I, I learned a bit about neurophysiology and maybe we'll understand how there could be anything like preserving quantum coherence at the right level. And I failed because all I learned about was the Hodgkin-Huxley nerve transmission. It seemed to me there was no, not a hope in hell. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote the book anyway with some kind of vague excuse at the end. And Stuart Hameroff read my book and he says he was very interested, but he he gathers that I didn't know about microtubules. So he came on and explained to me microtubules, and I thought, now they have a much, much better chance. So we had our collaboration from then on. So that's one area that... that um, see, I don't do much on that area, because it's, it's, that is the biology, and I don't really... Biology is beyond me, mostly. I just sort of hear what other people say.
0: But on this word belief, plays an interesting role. I mean, you have a kind of scientific belief in things like quantum mechanics which some people hold very fast to but I, I was interested that that you used the word that you just didn't believe that you know that that computers could do, could replicate the 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 processes that are happening in the mind and it's based on some sort of feeling which has guided you often i think i think you often have this kind of belief structure that guides you
1: you're right It's very difficult, of course, because it's such an intangible thing. It's very hard to say what that is. But it is something to do with... See, I like to use the word understanding, but probably that's a bit limited. You see, when I talk about the girdle thing, see, what it is, it has to know what the symbols mean. And to know what the symbols mean enables one to do things that it can't do without knowing what it means. I mean, it's it's a very subtle thing. And people kind of think, oh, well, you just, you know, put it on a computer and give it a zillion, you know, it knows what a smile means because you give it, give it a, a thousand pictures of people or a million of them. <laughs> and some, some of them smile and some don't. I don't know, things like that. I, I mean, if it's doing it just by experience and no understanding, which is, ultimately how we came about anyway, because natural selection is like that. So there is something which comes about through just trying all sorts of things and and seeing which one works best without understanding. But we get to a level with, through the evolution, which gave us whatever brains we have and gave them this quality of understanding, which... It doesn't know anything about if I can put it that way. But the quality of understanding is, is something physical. I, I mean, it depends on something physical, which I claim to be what's involved in the, in the, the collapse of the wave function. I mean, it's, it is a view which I held from quite early on, which was putting together the girdle thing and the and Dirac's lectures, basically, and that there is something which is not covered by the equations of quantum, you see, the equations of quantum mechanics are inconsistent with themselves because you have an equation which is the Schrödinger equation. It's a perfectly clear equation. You could put that on a computer. It, it's pretty difficult to do because you have enormous numbers of parameters often, but nevertheless, it is computational. Yet that's not the whole story, and it's not what nature does. Because if nature followed the Schrodinger equation, as Schrodinger was very, very clear to point out himself, you could produce a state which is a cat which was dead and alive at the same time. And he produced this example to show the absurdity of our understanding of quantum mechanics. Many people take it the other way. They say, oh, yes, well, we <laughs> could make a, a cat which was, uh, you know, maybe it's not a cat, but it could be a big thing which you put in two places at once and so on. Without pointing out the absurdity, which is what Schrödinger was really trying to express. And he and Einstein and Dirac himself, quite remarkably, I only learned about that, that relatively late in life, believed that quantum mechanics needed fixing. That as it stands, it's an inconsistent... They were much too polite to call it inconsistent. They called it incomplete. I'm not quite so polite, and I call it inconsistent, because the reduction of the state or the collapse of the wave function is inconsistent with the Schrodinger equation. It just does not follow the Schrodinger equation. So either you've got to do one of these crazy routes and go along many worlds. You say all these all these worlds exist simultaneously in some way, and then you have to explain why we don't experience the other ones and so on. So it doesn't really make much sense. It doesn't help you, really. But all these different... People get you know tied up in knots about trying to interpret quantum mechanics. With my view, is you don't interpret it, you change it. And you change it in a way which is... Beyond just not that far beyond, but beyond current experiments. There is an experiment which has been performed by Dirk Baumister. When I say performed, he's he's been working towards performing it. And he last time I saw him, he was giving it about a couple of years, to so which is about one year from now. So we'll have to cross fingers and see if he's right. But he's been pretty good on, on, on his his time scale prediction, which is unusual for experimental physicists, so maybe we will see in answer to this that you would see if it is what I claim to be a gravitational effect, then you you would begin to see it in these experiments so we 're just on the sort of borderline of, of experiments which of course it might not be gravitational, but it seems to be gravitational is by far the best candidate because you can see it 's inconsistent with quantum mechanics in in c- quite simple situations, so there is a problem. Mm. Mm. At least, I should say, the basic principles are inconsistent with each other. So there's something's got to something's got to go.
0: Well, some, yes, I mean, I mean, fundamentally, um, at the level of the black hole for which you were you know, the research for which you were awarded the, the Nobel Prize, there's a fundamental inconsistency between gravity and quantum mechanics.
1: Thing that people call, I don't know if you're referring to the same thing, but there is a thing that people call the information paradox. It's remarkable that most people, that I, most physicists that I know, go along the quantum route, which they shouldn't do, in my view. You see, in a black hole, it really comes from Stephen Hawking's um, black hole evaporation thing. The fact that the black holes, well, they swallow information. And then when they evaporate away, according to Hawking evaporation, what happens to the information that they swallow? Well, maybe it goes into the radiation, maybe it goes destroyed on the singularity, um, but it gets lost whichever way well, no, If it, what gets destroyed on the singularity gets lost. Some of it may come out in the radiation, and there's a big argument about how much does, but some has to get lost on the singularity. So you do have to violate the information conservation, which means violating unitarity, which means violating the Schrodinger equation. So, yes, black holes must violate the Schrodinger equation. I think that's pretty clear. But, no, when I say it's pretty clear, it's not pretty clear, because... <laughs> Many physicists believe they can't. I'm sorry. It's clear to me, but it's not clear to other people. They, you see, they think, I don't know, I can't understand. They're just so wedded to unitarity. When I say unitarity, that's what I mean. It's in simple-minded, well, it is the Schrodinger equation. It means that the evolution follows this equation. Yeah. And so you can't lose information. The Schrodinger equation doesn't lose information. So how does it do it? And Schrodinger himself was modest enough to say that his equation has to be not the answer to these issues. There's something else going on.
0: Again, it comes back to this question of a kind of belief, a kind of adherent to a scientific philosophy that people seem very willing to, to, to buy into. And um, uh, I'm sure for, for good reason, but I don't know whether you think that um, it's to the service of physics in general that people feel so strongly about their particular thing whether it's string theory or whatever
1: I mean I think it's it's a necessary feature you see sort of commitment that people have to their ideas which enables them to delve into them sufficiently to explore them fully which if they didn't you might never know Even if it's wrong. And then you can find out it's wrong. At least you'd hope to. Although that doesn't necessarily happen. Um, Yeah. That's a good answer. So I think that's plus. But what's the minus? Is that people so infrequently can be deflected from this sort of view. I remember Dennis Sharma, he was Stephen Hawking's supervisor. He was also my... Mentor, I would guess you call he, he was not a supervisor of mine, but he, I did learn an awful lot of physics from him. He somehow um, picked up on me and decided he was going to teach me physics. Well, I can remember the occasion which persuaded him on that. But it was, yes. But anyway, we used to do things like drive to Stratford and watch the plays. And as we did, he would, he would talk very animatedly about various things, which excited me very much. He was very much a physicist and not a mathematician, but he was a great um, proponent of the steady state model. This model of cosmology, in which the universe expanded, yes, but new matter was created in the form of hydrogen, and this matter replenished the, the matter that disappeared from the expansion or you know, went out of the, from out of the horizon and disappeared, and so. That model, it arose for a very good reason originally, because there was a mistake in people's estimations of the age of the universe. There are clusters of stars called globular clusters, and they are very old it's in the dynamics, so you can work out that they're very old. And they seem to be older than the age of the universe, earlier than the Big Bang, which is impossible, because there wasn't anything, according to the standard view. Before the Big Bang. So, how did these globular clusters manage to be so old? And it came about because there was a mistake in people's estimate of the age of the universe. It depended on confusing two different kinds of variable, Cepheid variable stars. There were two different kinds, and and people got confused between the two, and they'd worked out that the universe was younger than it actually is. Well, time from the Big Bang, that is. Mm -hmm. So, when that was discovered to be wrong, the, um, the, then the, the microwave background was discovered by Penzias and Wilson. And this was a good evidence for this very, very early, very, very hot stage in the universe. Now, what I'm trying to get to was Dennis Sharma, who was this very strong proponent of steady state and went around lecturing about it all, all over the world, as soon as he got convinced that Penzias and Wilson was right he changed and he would give lectures to say, I was wrong. The steady state model is wrong. It doesn't hold up. We now have to study the Big Bang Theory. And I was extremely impressed by that. Somebody who could be so committed to one view and then when the experiments show that the view is wrong, he changed his mind.
0: That's honesty, isn't it?
1: Um... That was real honesty, yes, yes, absolutely. Unfortunately, rather rare. (laughs) But I think it's relating to your question. I mean, you see, people get so committed in the things that they follow that they somehow refuse to accept if it's not going to work.
0: Well, I suppose one problem, perhaps more now than before, but I don't know if that's the case, is that your, your career, your standing, your profile is all tied up in, in the stories you're telling and
1: maybe yes that's interesting isn't it yes there is a story yes yes
0: i don't know i mean maybe maybe such honesty has always been rare and maybe um it's always been thus but or, or, or perhaps these days people are more sensitive to not being i don't know um proved wrong
1: uh, you see here me being sort of too committed to my own views although I, there was i mean i changed my view here you see yeah You see, it was very interesting because you know Stephen Sacker, who interviews people. And he somehow very early got hold when I very early thought about the CCC, the Conformal Cyclic Cosmology, whereas previously, you know, I'd been talking about the Big Bang and uh, and Stephen Hawking had been developing my theorems in the direction of cosmology and showing me apply to the Big Bang too. And so on, and we got together with a theorem which encompassed the ones we'd done before, and so on. And then, when I'd, I don't know where he got it from, but Stephen Sacker had got hold of the fact that I had changed my mind. And we went into his studio, I think, and he told me as we were walking in, he said, usually I interview politicians, and I take an aggressive view with them. I, I argue with them, tell them, you know, I'm going to have to do that with, with you. I'm, I, I just thought I'd better warn you. <laughs> So in the middle of this discussion, he said, why did you change your mind? (laughs) And I think I said, well, I think, you know, I'm trying to be a scientist. And therefore, if the evidence points another way, then I I should go the other way. I can't remember what I said exactly. Presumably there's record of it somewhere. But it was something like that.
0: Well, presumably this was one of his hard talk interviews. Well, bold of him to take you on, I suppose. I was very impressed
1: with him, I must Mm, say. mm, mm. I mean, because most of my colleagues didn't even know about this idea. I hadn't talked about it. I think I'd squeezed it into the end of lectures I'd given occasionally. Just, well, here's an idea or something like that. It wasn't until considerably later, when a talk I gave in Cambridge, where I did put it forward in a sort of serious way. He picked up picked it up before that, which I thought was very remarkable.
0: For those of us who are um, who struggle to maintain focus on one idea at a time, um, how, what advice do you have for how to keep focused? Because I imagine for you, <laughs> you must get distracted all the time by nice uh, nice possibilities.
1: I have to blame the Nobel Prize for it, partly, <laughs> because I was I was just sort of almost finished with a. A section of of these notes which I'd been sending out to colleagues. This is on the collapse of the wave function. That's the mm. I was trying to develop ideas. It was the COVID-19 which had sort of prevented me from traveling around the world and therefore I was concentrated on... It was really notes to people. It wasn't really an article as such or a book or what. I wasn't quite sure what to do with it. I just want people's reactions. So I sent them out to... It ended out about 30 people I sent them out to. And... Uh, I got some quite interesting, not, not very many people responded, but quite a few with interesting ideas, which I, which, you know, developed what I was thinking about. And then I had some idea, I think uh, somebody suggested to me, well, uh, you have to have an experimental mental test because there's a certain curious kind of retroactivity in it, which really you have to, get to bend your mind around rather about. And uh, so I said, well, look, maybe there's an experiment. And so I figured out this experiment which, curiously enough, seems to indicate that the conventional way of looking at quantum mechanics gives you the right answer, whereas most of the models which try to model it, well, try to modify it give you the wrong answer. And so, I mean, I was trying to put it forward as something which gives the right answer in my scheme, but then I realized afterwards that the conventional way of looking at quantum mechanics gives you the same answer as mine does, which maybe is a good thing. But I was in the middle of writing that, and then the Nobel Prize thing came along, and so I've not got any further with it since then <laughs> but I, I really do need to go back to it but you're you're asking me how do i keep these things mind at once i don't know
0: well yes um, yes i mean that's the thing that how do you um given that um that i imagine on a daily basis um you can't help but think a little bit about consciousness and then a little bit about i don't know yeah. cos- cosmology how do you sublimate the cosmology yeah. and keep concentrated on the consciousness
1: I think it 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 is more that one comes in and the others take a back seat. I mean, there's a rumbling which goes on, it's true, and and the ideas which so I may be talking to somebody about something on the consciousness thing which rings a little bell about one of the other topics. that can happen, yes, yes. I think that can happen. but there's not much sort of deep thinking about the other topics. But it's difficult to know what does deep thinking do. I find so much I I deep think about something and I just go along the same lines every time. So it's really something needs to come in to change the way you're thinking about something. And it may be an idea from a different topic. So that sometimes does happen, yes.
0: Yes, because on our call just on the day of the... Nobel Prize announcement. You mentioned that lovely story of the essential idea occurring. To you as you were crossing a road, and you know you never know when these things will pop in. So I suppose it's just being being receptive to that happening, and then having a good enough memory to realise what's just happened.
1: Well, therefore, that was the one which which rather almost got, it almost got lost. I had another one more recently, which I was afraid it was going to get lost, but I managed to retrieve it. <laughs> Fortunately. <laughs> Um, But that one, yes, the the trapped surface idea for the black holes, yes, that was the one (laughs) that won the Nobel Prize. I had no idea at the time, of course. But I had been thinking about the kinds of techniques. I just didn't see how to use them. Mm. And then uh, Ivor Robinson, this this colleague of mine, was talking away to me. He was a a wonderful talker and, and... Wonderful stories had, and then we crossed the streets, and he stopped talking as we crossed the streets. And this idea sort of surfaced, mm. and then disappeared again as we got to the other side. And I felt elated in some strange way, and so I had to re- retrieve what that idea was. I realized that had some thought. I had to work all the way through what I was doing in the day before I got to it.
0: Let me finish by asking one thing: um, yes. Do you ever give up on a thought? Do you give? Do you ever just think something is just beyond anybody's ken, and you're just not
1: going to bother with this one? I'm very bad at giving up. It's true. I'm, I'm very. I know Stephen Hawking was that way. I remember describing how, how determined he was about things. But it's true. I don't easily give up on things. I give up if I if I realise they're wrong. That happens certainly. I had a completely crazy idea early on, yes, I don't believe it anymore, but I I, I tend to stick to these ideas, yes, I'm not very good at giving up on them, well, I have ideas which I just, you know, don't think there's much chance, but maybe I've got, yeah, I mean, there's this problem of tiling the plane with a single shape which forces non-periodicity. You know, I did it with two shapes, you see. Is there a single shape? People call it an Einstein, you see, one, one stone. <laughs> can you, can you uh, produce an Einstein? So it only, it only tiles periodically. And I had a sort of idea of how you might do this. And I sort of drew it up. And I have a blackboard in my bedroom, you see. <laughs> well, it's a whiteboard, yes, in my bedroom. And i would drawn up these things to try and see if I could do it. See, I don't believe that's going to work, actually. But it's, in the, it's a thought which is worth exploring. <laughs> What's I on mean, the... that particular thought, I mean, maybe there is an Einstein, but the, the particular concept of an Einstein I had, I think it's too far-fetched that it's not likely to work, but it has a chance. I would say that has a probably about a, a 5% chance. But you see, when I had an, an idea, usually it's only about 50%. See, so people used to say when they have an idea, they know they're right, you see. I don't think it's ever quite like that, but it's an idea like the tiling one. You see, I had my pentagon tiling, and I'd drawn it out for a friend of mine who was in hospital to try and cheer her up a bit. And uh, later on, I thought, looking at this pattern, is there a way of making it into a jigsaw puzzle? So you put little knobs and notches on the pieces and force that arrangement. Now I, that, you see, I, uh, you might call it an inspiration or something, it was true, but I was giving it about 50%. I think, I think that's, if I have a thing, something which strikes me as a good idea, maybe has a 50% chance. I think when I thought CCC, the Formal Faculty Cosmology, I, I was giving it 50%. That's not a very accurate 50. It could be 20 or 80.
0: <laughs> sure, but it's a lovely insight that it doesn't come as a ready-formed, 100% right idea.
1: No, it doesn't. That's absolutely right. It's not a 100% certain idea. It needs thinking about. It's an idea which has got a chance. I'd say that's it. And it's different from ways of thinking before. And it has a chance, yes.
0: A lovely phrase, an idea that's got a chance. I like that. And the whiteboard in your bedroom is there because you wake up full of ideas or just... It is
1: there for that reason, yes. Yes, Yes, I wouldn't put... Well, it's partly because I've got too many boards. (laughs) You see, I have a blackboard, which I've got in my study. I've got a portable whiteboard, which is... I prop up if I want to do it in front of a screen and I do something by Zoom or something. Um, and I've got a very small one which I sometimes use and then I had this whiteboard and I couldn't think where to put it so I thought i put it in the bedroom <laughs> it's a little bit distracting because I've got a picture on there which I don't think I should be thinking about I should rub it out <laughs> It's just a distra- I don't think it's a it's not an idea such it's just an exploring something
0: I have to finish by asking whether there's something magic about the board rather than a pen and paper
1: <laughs> which I much like I like blackboards much the best, and I think they are better in a way. Whiteboards I'm not so keen on, but they they're not so they're not so much worse than blackboards. Mm.
0: But it's something about the chalk.
1: There is something about how easy it is to change things. Mm. I think that's it. You put something out, and you can modify it much more easily. See if you draw something. Well, you could draw it in pencil and keep rubbing it out, but then in a little while your paper rips and that doesn't work. But on the blackboard, you can, you can very easily sketch something out, use your hand to wipe it off. See, that's what's superior to a whiteboard. I mean, you get your squirter and you have to yeah, do it, yeah. and then it drips all down the board, and, and you, you, you have to mop it up and so on. <laughs> no, whiteboard, a blackboard is much better because you can just wipe it out if you've got a cloth or your hand, and you can just modify a picture. Or if I have an equation, I can just take one thing to term out in the middle and put it in the right term, you see. Oh, yeah. No, that's blackboards are much better.
0: I can see online sales of blackboards surging as a result of this. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That's been a lovely, lovely conversation. Um,
1: well, I hope it's been helpful.
0: Oh, hugely. And hugely enjoyable fascinating so thank you so much
1: okay it's been my pleasure
2: you've just heard nobel prize conversations a podcast series with adam smith by Filt for nobel prize outreach the producer for this episode was sally henrickson and i'm claire brilliant music by epidemic sound This episode is from Season 2 of the show. Don't miss our conversation with Penrose's co-laureate, the American astronomer and physicist Andrea Gez. You can find that episode and all our previous seasons and conversations on ACAST or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarven, Spotify and many, many more popular platforms.